and welcome to the Total Sucker Show. My name is Daryl Grove, and I'm joined by a man who's still hyped up from that Baku atmosphere. <laughs> oh, man. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. The monotone sound of people having normal conversations at, like, like usual room volume. Yep. Yeah, it was great. It was super lovely. So that is what happened, right? Pretty much. So we're here to review the Europa League final. Mm-hmm. It finished, spoiler alert, Chelsea 4, Arsenal 1. Arsenal not in the Champions League next year. They're not. Chelsea were already there, and now they've got a shiny trophy uh, to add to it. Mm-hmm. And um, we think they still have a coach. As of now, they still have a coach. We'll yeah, see how that plays out. We'll talk out. about Sarri's future maybe sure. afterwards. And mm-hmm. maybe Unai Emery's future. We should have a little chat about right. it. I think Arsenal might be having a little chat, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, it was in Baku, in Azerbaijan, the Europa League final, where famously there were, what, maybe 10,000 total tickets available to fans. And even then... Chelsea and Arsenal fans didn't fill that allocation, I don't think, because it's so hard to get to Baku because there's not enough hotels because the final should not have been at this place. Yeah, I mean, and also if you're an Arsenal fan who, say, enjoys Enrique Mkhitaryan, yes. uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan do not have diplomatic relations. Uh, there were many things said back and forth about he would be safe, he wouldn't be safe, he'll probably be safe, but don't make an issue of it. In the end, yeah, he did yeah. not travel. So UA- I- UEFA could not guarantee his safety and he'll probably be safe is not good enough. No. Uh, I, I'm not. If someone told me you'll probably be safe if you go in that room i'm not going in that room their ambassador i believe literally said he'll probably i wasn't joking i think they said he will be safe unless he makes an issue of it it being i guess him being an armenian so yeah i like him not going makes sense but then it also sort of if you're an arsenal fan like do you kind of show solidarity do you show support for your player who can't travel yeah i feel like that would make me disinclined to travel and certainly to travel to a place that's going to be expensive and Honestly, like, isn't going to be. It's not like you're going to like, like this like old city that's been there. I mean, it's been there for a long time, but it's not. It doesn't have that like romance. It's not Madrid where the Champions League final is being played, where there's mm-hmm. other stuff to do. It sort of feels like you're going to a place that is there because they have lots of money. Yes. So the the brief history of Azerbaijan, mm-hmm. uh, the tournament re- is there rather. Recent yeah. history is a lot of oil money mm-hmm. in Azerbaijan, and they're trying to just do a public relations thing and just yeah. have things happen. That's 100%. why they managed to get UEFA to let them have the Europa League final. The other thing about the atmosphere that we actually didn't get to is because there were only those 10,000 tickets available for Chelsea Arsenal fans. The rest of the stadium mm-hmm. was full of basically non-fans, right? Like some yeah. corporate stuff, probably some locals. And as Taylor said, you, so we, we watched the game. It wasn't a thrilling first half. So the, the actual soccer, which we'll get to, why, maybe why that wasn't so thrilling mm-hmm. in the first half. But the atmosphere was just dead, right? You could literally just hear people having conversations. Yeah. I mean, they were or, just chatting away. Yeah, it, it sounded like a, a room sounds before, like they're quieted so the speaker can give their presentation. Yes. That's what it sounded like. Before a someone taps a glass with a fork. Yes, exactly. <laughs> a few times you heard some people chanting for Arsenal. I think Arsenal got a corner. But even yeah. then, it was just sort of Arsenal repeated over and over again, which to me is the sort of the baseline chant when you don't kind of have a unifying chant, which uh-huh. is usually it's something you'll hear when, like, uh, say, Liverpool come to the US for a preseason game if you don't kind of have the standardized chance that you would have at Anfield you get a lot of Liverpool Liverpool (laughs) it's what you get so Mm -hmm. a weird situation in which to play this game yeah but then the game itself, the first half was really tough to watch. It really was. Yeah. It really was because it felt like both teams were sort of set up to negate each other. And similar to World War One, you ended up just having a lot of like, ah, oh, this isn't going to work. Ah, oh, this isn't going to work. We're both going to kind of stand off and evaluate. So a first half of attrition. Yes. Yeah. One of the most, so one of the most interesting tactical things to me is Arsenal went out and had Mesut Ozil mm-hmm. man-marking Jorginho. Yes. Right? So a lot of the Chelsea short passing, a lot of it famously goes through Jorginho. It makes sense to mark him. A lot of teams have done that. Uh, to try and nullify Chelsea this year. Mm-hmm. But Mesut Ozil is such a weird choice to do that. 
Yes, uh, and I think that was uh, exemplified by his second half of yeah. quote unquote man marking Jorginho. So, but he did do it first half. Right? He did. He didn't mm-hmm. look thrilled about it, no. but he mostly did it. And I, I think the the idea in Unai Emery's head is. One, we get uh, Ozil to like block off passes to Jorginho mm-hmm. so Chelsea can't go through him. But two, if and when we have the ball or it turns over, then if you're marking the defensive midfielder, you're roughly in the attacking midfield spot anyway. So mm-hmm. then Ozil's ready to go from yeah. there. So I could see why it made sense to Unai Emery, I, but, but it I, didn't really work out. Well, see, I think it kind of worked in the first half because yeah. Chelsea were still trying to kind of force balls into Jorginho, but because he has Mesut Ozil usually like, right on his back... He, when he would try to yard do, or two away. but when he would try to, well, the first half I think he he was, okay, he, he, was yeah. he was pretty close, and I felt like we saw uh, uh, Jorginho fail to connect a lot of passes because he was trying to play quick passes and like diagonals, like reverse diagonals, and they just didn't come off. I think. Chelsea kind of changed it up a little bit in the second half, and I also think Ozil started to be less sort of diligent about that man-marking yes. responsibility. And those two things combined, I think, to partially explain at least why Chelsea were able to find four goals in the second half. Ooh, so big picture, do you think it's fair to say that Ozil's dedication to marking Jorginho lessened as Chelsea kept scoring? 100%. He was more like, all right, I'm going to go make something happen instead. Yes. That said, like w- if you go back and watch the start of the second half, I mean, admittedly, Chelsea scored four minutes into the second half, so that you know it's not like it was happening for a long time. Yeah. But we started to see Mesut Ozil switch off a little bit. You started to see him mm. m- maybe not as inclined to be near Jorginho. I think in the couple minutes before Chelsea do eventually score the opening goal, he does not track Jorginho, and Jorginho is like could Shaka have been, ends up with him, he right? wasn't yeah. necessarily involved but he could have been involved and again that's like I know that sounds like nitpicking but all I'm trying to say is that even in the first couple minutes of the second half you already started to see Mesut Ozil like and I mean this sincerely like sort of just be like eh I don't feel like doing it because you could see his body language where he was just like shoulder slumped and he would sort of go jogging towards Jorginho yeah. but this again that Ozil problem dips. all his career mm-hmm. with Arsenal fans I think body language yeah. maybe gets misinterpreted sometimes as laziness, but I think there was actual laziness towards the end of the game from Ozil. Uh, yes, I, I, I think that's probably true. Like, because ball would turn over and go the other yeah. way, and Ozil would kind of, like, just shrug. like literally, or, or, like, he'd, he'd sort of uh, express his frustration when a teammate's pass didn't get to him, mm-hmm. but then not hustle back to try and win the ball back so they could make that attack happen again. Yes. Yeah? I, I take your point. I would say that, like, there are moments where it looked like he was kind of being lazy, but I think... The other thing for me is that like, if you have a person whose job is to sort of be that, I guess for purposes of, of what we're talking about, like an energetic midfielder who's going to go lock down. Like, like I think of like Under Herrera doing that to Aiden Hazard. And it's like this kind of energetic player who's always going to be working hard and working hard and working hard. And you need the body language to match that. As soon as you start seeing the kind of hands up and frustration or the head down or the kind of slow walk or the slow jog, mm-hmm. if it's, even if it's not lazy, it's still sort of – it shows you that that level of enthusiasm isn't there. And if you – I do think if you're keying to that, if you're looking to Mesut Ozil to be that player who's like, okay, he's marking. Now I'm – oh, he's not marking. I, I guess I'll go step. Like it just kind of changes the rhythm a little bit yeah. and it throws things off. And he wasn't the only Arsenal player that no, maybe uh, certainly not. stopped in his tracks or <laughs> wasn't uh, enthusiastic about tracking back after they'd lost the ball. It kind of it kept – it became an Arsenal-wide problem. Yes. I'm not saying it necessarily starts with Ozil, but – He's one of the key players, right? So he's kind of involved. We started to see the like, like we call it a quicksand game when it's one individual player starts making mistakes over and over and over again. Yeah, but it's like a quicksand game for a team is what I think we saw from Arsenal, yeah. where you you could clearly see players being frustrated by the decisions of others. So then when yes. they got the ball, they were like, "Well, then I'm going to do my own thing." Pierre Emerick Aubameyang coming to mind, mm-hmm. shooting 
several times when he really should have passed or had open options to pass for even yep. better, high, more high percentage shots. And to me, that felt like, look, I haven't, I haven't gotten chances. You all have been doing your own thing, so now I'm going to do my own thing. And again, once you start, that's I guess what I'm talking about with Ozil, that once you start having those sort of cracks show, the body language slumps, it kind of becomes a pervasive issue. And whereas I think Chelsea came out in the second half certainly way more up for it. They kind of up the tempo a little bit. They up the intensity at a time when I think Arsenal came out kind of more or less the way they finished the half. And I think, again, it showed in the four goals. And here's, okay, here's my big tactical takeaway mm-hmm. from this game, which I think uh, sort of describes the first goal. That Giroud diving header, the cross from Emerson, yep. uh, the left back for Chelsea. My working theory of this game is that Arsenal's shape was... 3-4-1-2 in attack, right? That's an optimistic version of it, yeah. right? With Maitland-Niles right wing back and Kolasinic left wing back, so all you know, wide midfielders. But eventually, when Chelsea started attacking them... I think other it, way around, right? Maitland-Niles right wing back? Is that not what I said? Um, maybe you did. Maybe I think I that's exactly that what I said. Okay. Well, listeners will know by all the time right. they hear this. Mm-hmm. I actually, I'm not confident. All right. <laughs> listeners will let us know. Um, but either way, when Arsenal would start to fall back into defending, it ended with a back five, right? Because mm-hmm. they had the back three of, correct me if I'm wrong here, Koscielny, Socrates, Nacho Monreal, three centre-backs. Then Kolasinic would be the left-back, Metlinoz would be the right-back. That's a back five. Yep. And then you've got Shaka and Torreira as two defensive midfielders. And then you've got Messi as well, kind of ahead of them. Mm-hmm. And then two strikers. Yep. And the shape I've just described is a 5-2-1-2. And that means there's a lot of space out wide, especially if Metlinoz and Kolasinic are level with their centre-backs. There's all kinds of space for Emerson, um, or Aspilicueta, but Emerson more so, especially for this first goal, to just step into and have the ball with no pressure on them. And my argument is that's why Emerson was able to just take his time, pick out that cross to Olivier mm-hmm. Giroud. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, and I think that's exactly what he does. But I also think the confusing thing is you're right at times. It was a flat back five. You could spread that across, and now you can kind of plug any gaps. You don't leave space out wide, but you've got numbers in the middle. But then you also had moments when it looked like it was a back five, but somehow they were all inside the 18, or yeah, you have all three back center five, backs right? within like an eight-yard space. So then you still have gaps to play through, yeah. and that's kind of what happens for that first and goal. Even, even then, England in the World Cup, I, I remember talking about this, they played a sort of 5-3-2 defending, mm-hmm. and they'd have those three-centre midfielders would have to shuffle left and right to try and cover when the fullbacks came forward. If you've got three midfielders, and one of them is Ozil, who's already drifting farther forward, then you're really asking Torreira and Shaka mm-hmm. between them to shuffle left and right, yeah. cover those wide spaces. It's impossible. It's, it, a, it's actually impossible. It is, but and I think this is where Unai Emery comes in for uh, blame for me, because mm-hmm. you could see Maitland-Niles in the lead up to this goal, uh, but kind of consistently, especially in the second half, being uncertain of if he was supposed to go or not. Yeah. I think anytime you see do a defender... Do I stay with Hazard or do I go to Emerson? And I think if you see a defender sort of like wanting to go, but holding up and kind of dropping back, which is what Maitland-Niles did, to me that means he's been told, don't go charging out, don't yeah. leave space in behind for them to exploit. Aiden Hazard is more than capable of exploiting it. Yep. So when in doubt, kind of stay back and do your defensive job. Yep. And that can work, but then in moments like for the first goal, Emerson gets the ball and Maitland-Niles eventually sort of gets to him, but even then is still maybe five yards away. It's not really any pressure. And you're letting a player then kind of pick out the space, take their time, find the cross, put it in. Not even a cross, but just put in a kind of lifted pass that's perfectly hit because there's no pressure there, so he has all the time in the world. So we've talked a lot about what Arsenal did wrong. Yeah. Let's talk about what Chelsea did right. Sure. Signing Olivier Giroud. I mean, that's a big In hindsight. (laughs) Pretty good. Yeah. 
his, uh, his run sort of across mm-hmm. the front of, I believe, Kashoni. I'm pretty confident it's Kashoni. Um, or maybe behind Kashoni. Uh, no, across the front of Kashoni. Mm-hmm. And I think he kind of gestures where he wants the ball. He, he's got the time to ask Emerson where to put it. And then he can get on the end of it with that diving header. Yeah, I, I think he gets like an arm out. But it's not the kind of like emphatic gesturing. It's more of a just like, yeah, play the ball low in. Yeah, and yeah. that's what happens. Uh, and then, you know, credit to Giroud. Like he puts his head on the line because he goes for the header. Kashoni goes for the toe. Like, yeah. To poke away. So Giroud puts his head where mm-hmm. Kishoni was putting his feet. There you go. That's, yeah. It's, it's determination. It is, and it's yeah. a great header because it's a, like, a nice directional header. There's not much that can be done about it for Petr Cech. I, I do think that he had about, about as good of a game as he could have, especially since one of the goals is a penalty. He mm-hmm. makes, Petr Cech makes a big save, does get down, I think, late in the first half to make a save on, Petr, uh, on uh, Olivier yes, Giroud. Yes, I think yes, he does yes. the same later on in the game. So That was um, a confusing moment for me, by the way. Which one? Oh. Anytime Cech for yeah. Arsenal was saving a, a shot from Giroud for Chelsea, I, yeah. I was all like temporarily confused. It was the commentators didn't help either. <laughs> yeah, I was temporarily, temporarily confused. Yeah, David Pleat, um, who was the color commentator, yeah. he, he got mixed up a couple of times. Yeah. He was talking about Giroud's Arsenal contract. Names ne- didn't necessarily have to match the player that actually was being talked about in that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some Kovacic Hazard mix up. Yeah, uh-huh. well. okay. right. I, I think he confused Hazard and Kante at one point, which he is an <laughs> interesting one to confuse. We're not here to criticize a 74 year old man. Yeah, we can. Uh, we did it, but we'll move yeah. on. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, 60th minute. Mm-hmm. It's 2 0 Chelsea. It is. This is the Pedro goal. Uh, yes. Pedro with this sort of, I'd call it like a snap volley kind of as he comes across and bounces it into the floor and puts it past Petr Cech. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. This all starts with Maitland-Niles losing the ball, it unfortunately. Does. It does. And this is this is probably one where I felt like he was going to be at more at fault when it came down to kind of putting people at blame because he doesn't necessarily close down Emerson. He's uh, conceded Maitland the penalty. Yeah. yeah. Uh, those two, I would say maybe there's like like a little alleviating factors. Here, I do think he's actually more at fault than the other three goals potentially because it is getting him getting dispossessed at a time when he really needed to not get it's caught in possession. It's a shame, right? Because mm-hmm. I think he tackles Hazard to begin this yeah. move and then he's away and I think he just tries to like pull a cut on, on uh, Jorginho mm-hmm. and he just cuts too hard, right? Yeah. So he cuts so heavy that Jorginho can step across him a little bit and Hazard can just pick the loose ball up yeah. as well. Yeah. And, and, and then looked, Chelsea are away. They are. It looked for a moment like there was a foul there. My guess is because there was VAR, it didn't get looked at, and there wasn't much uh, like protestation from Maitland-Niles. My guess is that he sort of knows the cut was heavy, and even if there was a little bit of contact, he then kind of throws himself to the ground and hopes that he's going to get the call, Yeah, which ends up backfiring because he does not, but he's slow to get back up. And I also think this there's, is there's where... There's a gap where he should have been as well for this goal, right? Yeah. yeah, but this is also where you really start to see the body language of the Arsenal players come into the equation because I think both Aubameyang and, very specifically, Mesut Ozo at this point, that when that like turnover happens, both of them kind of throw their hands up in the air and then slowly walk backwards. Even the Thunder was mad about that. <laughs> um, and that's where I think you start to see the breakdown. But it happens there. Then Aiden Hazard gets the ball, which I have to believe is like the number one briefing from Moon. I am ready to his players was do not let Aiden Hazard pick up the ball and run at you with a full head of steam because problems will happen goals yep. will occur and and that's exactly what happened, it is indeed right so mm-hmm. talk us through what, what happens next um, I mean it's essentially I'm, I'm going to guess there are some Arsenal mistakes in here Yes, because uh, and I think like what I'm getting at with the uh, Eden Hazard, like don't let him run at you. It causes panic. It's similar to what we've seen with Lionel Messi before, where defenders kind of don't know what to do because oh no, Lionel Messi's coming at me. I don't want to get posterized. He's very good. Here, you saw Arsenal back off completely. 
Uh, I think it's Nacho ends up like five yards deeper than the rest of the Arsenal line. He eventually kind of tries to make a play, but I think once everyone is is scrambling, again because Mate Niles is dispossessed, but also because they're kind of backing off, you lose a lot of the defensive discipline that you need to yeah. defend in a system, and instead it's a lot of like improvisation, which is not what you want from your defenders. And once you start doing that, you're then sort of not as aware of what's going on. And again, it's why Nacho, I think, switches off and isn't aware of the run from Pedro, even while he's watching that run happen. Right, yeah. yeah. Pedro, I remember my memory of this is Nacho looks at Pedro and then backtracks towards his own goal as if Pedro is making a far post run. Yep. But as he's looking at Pedro, Pedro's going the other way mm-hmm. to be and, wide open for this chance. Yeah, and like, and if you put... Is it Hazard serves it up to him? Uh, yes, it yeah. is. Uh, and if you put yourself in that position, like if you, like in the games that I've been been in when I, I've never been in the Europa League final, but I just mean like in terms of when, you, Champions League when you player, see, right? yeah, obviously, when you see a thing happening and you sort of can't respond to it, to me that's, again, it's Pedro in that moment being alive to a thing and having the energy and the enthusiasm, whereas Nacho, like you can almost see him be like, ugh. Like, I guess I'll go yeah, try yeah. to make a play on this. But I think he was trying to kind of hedge his bets and gamble on what he thought was going to happen as it was kind of not happening the way he thought it would. Oh, dear. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's 2-0 to Arsenal. It's a great finish uh, from Pedro, sorry, too. it's not 2-0 to Arsenal. It's Mm-mm. 2-0 to Chelsea. It was a great finish mm-hmm. from Pedro. Unai Emery is looking at his bench thinking, okay, 2-0 down. Things are going wrong. I'm going to change the shape. I'm going to bring someone on. But what happens next is an ad for Robin Hood. <laughs> at least on our show. Ooh, what a teaser. Today's, a teaser. Show, today's show is sponsored for the final time mm-hmm. by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos. And you think there's commission, Taylor? No, there's no commission. There's no commission. There's it's never all, any commission. It's all commission-free. There's commission with um, other brokerages. There's no commission with Robinhood. Um, other brokerages might charge you $10 for every trade. Robinhood doesn't charge anything at all. So you trade your stocks and you keep all the profits. And investing can already seem like a little bit of like a daunting task to me. It, I can get in my head. I'm a little bit worried. What if I go wrong? What if I go right? What if I go too right? Then I'm a millionaire. Now I don't know what to do. Uh, Would but- you quit Total Stock Show? Probably not. No, because yeah, right. that's good to know. Yeah, the the uh, so you have my blessing to use Robinhood. Then. The market is fickle, Daryl. <laughs> but what what I do appreciate is that I don't have to worry about kind of making things happen because their app makes it uh, easy for newcomers and experts alike. You can see easy to understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. Mm-hmm. Just four taps, Daryl. That's all you need. Just four taps. It's impressive. I mean, there's not many things you can do for four taps. I think you can buy tickets to SeatGeek and you can uh, make <laughs> Robinhood happen, and that's about it. I think one of the key things is to sort of understand the market and know when to buy mm-hmm. and sell. Um, for example, Arsenal thought, <laughs> it was gonna a, do. <laughs> Arsenal thought it was a good idea to get rid, sell all that Olivier Giroud stock yeah. uh, back in the day. Mm-hmm. I think since then he's won a World Cup and then he's just scored past them in the Europa League. Yeah. yeah. And knocked them out of the Champions League officially. Oh, yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Sorry, Arsenal fans, but that, that is what happens. Um, is what happened. Yes. Um, if you want to be more informed than, say, the people who made that decision uh-huh. at, at Arsenal, you can use all the data um, on the Robinhood app to take a look at the markets uh, and make informed decisions about the stocks that you buy. Informed decisions are usually pretty good when it comes to the stock yeah. market, I'd say. <laughs> Best of all, you can get a free stock. Okay. Um, Robinhood has given listeners of the Total Stock Show a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint. No Giroud stock available, unfortunately. Um, to help you build your portfolio, you sign up at soccer.robinhood.com. That's soccer.robinhood.com. And for the final time, because this is the final Robinhood ad, so you've got to take advantage of this now mm-hmm. if you're going to do it and get that free stock, soccer.robinhood.com. 
Com. The thunder is mad that it's the final Robin Hood ad, but such is life. But thank be, you. We'll actually, we'll see how good our mics are. Mm-hmm. I would bet the thunder isn't picked up by our mics because they're so directional and focused. I don't, we'll see. We shall see. Yeah. But regardless, I will say thank you to Robin Hood <laughs> for gonna, sponsoring today's episode. I'm going to edit it out to make me look good. <laughs> That's going to be difficult, <laughs> I think. Um, also difficult to make a substitution uh, as your team's conceding a penalty because yes. I think that's what you were alluding to earlier. Unai Emery was trying to make a change. I think recognized that their system was not putting them mm-hmm. in an advantageous position. Oh, the old five two one two wasn't yeah, working. Not so much. <laughs> not so much. Doesn't matter how much you I mean, want. Again, it's worth noting. I think it worked in the first half, or at least it negated Chelsea's attacks. I think as near the end of the first half, I think Chelsea started to figure some things out. I think they probably game planned for they're sitting in a flat five. They're staying a little bit compact at times. There's going to be ways to deal with that, and I think Chelsea found those ways. And I think Unai Emery, to his credit, tried to change things up. But again, as we keep almost getting to, uh, <laughs> he ended up changing things up after Chelsea were three nil ahead. Okay, so it's Hazard scores the penalty. Yeah. It's Giroud wins it. Mm-hmm. It's a, basically a push in the back mm-hmm. from Ashley Maitland-Niles. Um, I think the key to this goal, though, is a thing that you mentioned earlier. It's the Maitland-Niles, should I stay or should I go now? Yeah. He, mm-hmm. he had a clash. He did. <laughs> so he was kind of pinned out over on the right wing, and he didn't know uh, whether to uh, step to Emerson um, or to or to stay with Hazard. And I think mm-hmm. there's almost like a 3v2 situation over there because mm-hmm. Chelsea have Kovacic, uh, Kovacic, excuse mm-hmm. me, Hazard and Emerson all over there. And Arsenal had Maitland, Niles and Torreira. Mm-hmm. 3v2, no one knew whether to step or go. And they kind of just froze. And as they freeze, Kovacic is like, all right, you dudes are going to stand there. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to dribble past all of you. And, and right? So he just cuts diagonally through the middle as Arsenal kind of can't figure out where to be. I mean, I, I hope it's that because the other takeaway for me was like, Torreira is a player that we, like, you you were initially very big on this season because you liked his energy, you yeah. liked his, his motor. Uruguay in the World Cup. Yeah. yeah. And, and in this game, I mean, when Kovacic goes by him, he just stops. Torreira just stands there. He actually step out of the way. And, and then literally just stands there and watches him run. And, yeah. and again, it's the, those moments of like, are you, are you sure that's what you want to do? You don't want to hassle him? You don't want to try to put that pressure I, on? So here's my theory. I think it's part of the confusion about mm-hmm. should I stay or should I go and where should I be? I think yeah. Torreira thinks he's got to go and take care of something else mm-hmm. and like maybe Kovacic is someone else's problem. I think So I don't think it's like Torreira's so dumb that he steps out of the way of a dribbling player. Yeah. It's more that he just is confused about where he needs to be because the whole tactical setup is all messed up at this point. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but then it, it's still like because it's... Similar Roy Keane would say, get your foot in there. I mean, yeah, definitely do that <laughs> because then what happens is you leave like a, an attacking player driving at your goal and similar to what happened for the second goal, the defense is then kind of panicky. Yep. They're a little bit focused on the like immediacy of the threat and not necessarily what else is happening. And I think this is where Socrates comes in for a bit of blame. Yes, it's Maitland-Niles who concedes the penalty, but it's Socrates who basically leaves Olivier Giroud because he's so concerned about the kind of driving run of Kovacic yes. and he ends up kind of stepping to that leaves Giroud open Giroud then gets the ball and now there's a scramble to deal with it and that's when Maitland-Niles he's the only one who's kind of aware that Giroud is wide open wide in open, a very right? strong shooting position yes. so he tries to close that gap by the time the ball's played tries too hard doesn't he? I mean Yes, but also <laughs> I think he's kind of still a little bit slow to get there at first because he's like, well, I'm not supposed to leave this space, but I guess I will. Then he accelerates, but by yeah. then it's too late, and there's a little bit of a shove in the back, and it's going to be a penalty. So it is Maitland-Niles' fault mm-hmm. for the like, shoving Giroud in the back. Like, yeah. I think even though you come you come charging and close fast, you've got to do it without knocking the player over, yeah. right? Because that's obviously um, 
that's going to be a penalty kick. Indeed. But I do think the big problem is what we t- what you hinted at, the socrates Kashoni confusion, mm-hmm. where there was no need for Socrates to go over to Giroud. Um, and they almost like switched, right? Yep. Kashoni and Socrates switched when they didn't need to switch. They no. each had a man. I mean, I mean, Kishone, it, w- it was very confusing because there is uh, – who is it who is actually tracking Kovacic? Or is this the second one where no one's <laughs> – Kovacic is essentially dribbling into Kashoni's area. Yes. Right? So he's going he's gonna to run into Kashoni at some point. Yes. And Socrates is farther away and closer mm-hmm. to Giroud. Yeah. But Socrates, instead of thinking, all right, Lawrence got this. He's been around. He knows what he's doing. He's been at Arsenal nine years. Um, Socrates goes over like, yep. I'm helping, I'm helping. Mm-hmm. But you're not. You're leaving Giroud wide open. Exactly. And then it's easy to just do the layoff to Giroud. Yep. Yeah. And then, yeah, penalty conceded. Aiden Hazard steps up, takes the penalty. Yep. 3-0. Then Iwobi comes on. Yeah. But by then, it's a little bit too late. It's not just Iwobi, right? Is it Iwobi and Genduzi? Yeah. And it's a whole formation change. I want to say it's a 4-2-3-1. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much what Arsenal end up with. They abandon the back five because Monreal comes off. Yes. Yeah. But it's it's also worth noting here that, like, while it is roughly the same time, it's uh, Genduzi on the 66th, the Iwobi on the 67th. Okay. Again, to me, that's them recognizing this has not gone well. It's not a planned double change. It's not even a like double change because things haven't gone right. It's like, okay, we're going to make this change. Now we've got to make another one. We're trying to figure this out on I the fly. I thought there was a double change coming after the second goal. I mean, I'm, I'm saying they happen at two different times. To me, yeah. that means they're but literally not maybe, happening at the same time. You have to do one at a time. So no, maybe don't. just, don't you? No. Oh, I thought maybe just you can like do a double, a double substitution? I guess you can, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Otherwise, it'd be the same minute. Yeah. So no, I think they, they definitely made... Is it true that do you both, do the two subs coming on run on at the same time or do they take it in turns? The first I guess one they take it in turns. The second one comes on. So, so I'm mi- saying like yeah. the first one could have happened in the 66th and the next one in the 67th just as time ticked over. I suppose. Yeah. That's possible. But yeah, yeah it, it still to me speaks to a sort of scramble to deal with stuff that maybe there was going to be one change and then suddenly we've got to make two. Even if it's at the same time, it's still sort of having to figure it out. And maybe also having to deal with some players who weren't as motivated because it's, as you said, Monreal and then Torreira coming off. Torreira who had just stepped out of the way and then stood there. Oh, yeah. Monreal who definitely looked a little bit lost at times in this game. Oh, okay. It does kind of pay off with that mm-hmm. magnificent Iwobi yeah. strike from distance, right? But even this great goal that it was, I, I don't think Arsenal fans should celebrate it too. I mean, obviously, it's a consolation goal. But it comes after just, what, Aubameyang bouncing a shot into the floor mm-hmm. and a, just an Arsenal scramble. Yeah. Like, it wasn't really an Arsenal turnaround. It was just they had one scrambly moment where everyone took a bunch of shots. Yeah. And even this Iwobi chance, it's a moment of genius from Iwobi, a moment of supreme skill from Iwobi. Mm-hmm. Arsenal didn't really create something. No. Iwobi just hit a, hit a worldy, essentially. And I, I kind of feel, I, I feel sad for Arsenal fans in this moment because... I've been in that moment as a fan, and you're absolutely like, okay, here we go. There's a chance. There's yeah. a chance for turning it around. But if you're in the moment of emotion, you kind of can't step back objectively and be like, that was a scramble, a mishit, a bad-headed clearance, and then a worldly volley. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily speak to we're definitely turning it around and playing consistent soccer at this point. I love that I've got the word worldly on, uh-huh. the, yeah, <laughs> on the Total Soccer Show. You know, yeah, that's a word, right? Yeah, it's a word, but we yeah. just never used it on yeah. the show before, mm-hmm. so I'm kind of I feel good about that. Seventy um, first minute, mm-hmm. um, it's really all over. Um, yes, it's really all over in the seventy first minute, seventy second minute. But yes, excuse me, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I'm sorry. Who scores this? Is it Aiden Aiden Hazard? Hazard? Yeah. Oh, this is the Giroud clever, clever chip. Right? Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. beautiful, beautiful stuff. But it's it's a lot of sort of again, it's stuff we've been talking about in this show. Uh, speaks to Arsenal really at this point. I think they're throwing numbers forward. They're trying to make something happen, but it's 
stuff we've already said you could kind of repeat for this goal because it's Socrates not being sure of where to go, so he ends up stepping to the ball. Oh, he steps away from Giroud and two Hazard. Exactly. Yeah. And so then the I ball. Like, have I got confused between these two goals? No, or does he just do the same mistake twice? It's, it's, this one is the one where they kind of switch positions a little bit, but it's not that dissimilar because it's, it's basically he steps to Hazard as Hazard is dribbling at them. Uh, ball goes to Giroud. So then Koscielny has to kind of go over and try to make a play. This is the one where I think Maitland Niles. Uh, no, it's Ganduzi, excuse me. Ganduzi is, cl- is chasing down ha- yeah. Hazard. Then he switches to Giroud. So really, if everybody it's stayed. It's a very similar goal. Though, it right? is. But it's if, a goal versus the PK. But and, if, yeah. and if everybody stayed where they were, it probably doesn't end up being nearly as threatening. Certainly, maybe it still ends in a goal, but it's basically because Socrates steps out. Then everybody, then the other two go to Mark Giroud, but then Socrates loses Hazard. And so when that ball goes back to Hazard, now Socrates is having to make a desperation play, and he can't get there in time. So there we go, mm-hmm. 4-1. The final 10 minutes of this game really felt like the ref should have done a mercy killing and just, yeah. just cancelled this. I know that's not how the Europa League final works. Not quite. But maybe next year. Um, so yeah, 4-1 with Arsenal players just trudging through the final few minutes. Yep. They do not make Mm-mm. the Champions League next year. Really my condolences to Arsenal fans who are yeah. listening because I'm sure this is a really tough loss to take because this was the final yep. hope. Um, and, and I would say, especially because it felt like heading into this game, momentum was completely on Arsenal's side. I mean, as we already talked about, no Mkhitaryan, but it, like even that, it felt like it could have been a motivating factor of like we're going to win it for our our teammate who yes. couldn't even who like chose not to travel, could not travel, what have you. And then there were the, the reports yesterday that there was a bust up in training between I think Iguain and, and David Luiz. Yeah, um, Sorry stormed out. Sorry stormed yeah. out that Conte wasn't going to be able to play. That was reported yesterday. Yeah. At the time, I thought like maybe this isn't like head games that this is like some tactical thing they're doing but the way Sarri walked out the way it just did not look good it felt to me like oh yeah N'Golo Conte isn't going to be able to play mm-hmm. instead he plays the whole game but I think all of that probably had Arsenal fans feeling and especially since they had something to play for when this game you're in the Champions League Chelsea already in the Champions League all of that made it seem like the momentum was 100% going Arsenal's direction so I feel like that makes it all the worse for an Arsenal fan that it didn't end up going the way they wanted alright stepping away from the game a mm-hmm. second well I guess it's still the game but would Mkhitaryan have made a big difference? I mean, I think so because I mean we don't know if he would have started, but um, I mean I don't th- I think he would have probably done a better job of tracking Jorginho than Mesut Ozil did. Okay, and maybe you bring Mesut Ozil fresh, maybe he's a little bit angry, maybe he really wants to try try to make oh, something happen. Maybe having the extra attacking midfielder frees up Ozil as well. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. It could have been they both played. Yeah, yeah. so I mean. That- he may also have not played, and then yeah. he's just there, and it doesn't end up working. I'll tell you this. Uh, Willock comes mm-hmm. on. Is it Joe Willock or Chris Willock? I Joe Willock. Joe Willock comes on. He actually was kind of lively. He had a couple of missed chances, but also had some lively mm-hmm. moments. But that's not a player they would have brought off the bench if they had Mkhitaryan, yeah, for I mean, example. So it does yeah. weaken the strength of Arsenal's bench, which I took a look at when they were a, a couple of goals down. And the, there weren't a lot of exciting options coming off that. No, I mean, it, it was what? like in terms Welbeck of, was available? Welbeck and Awobi were like the two kind yeah, of yeah. known attackers. And then you had like academy players, players like Joe Willock. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think if nothing else, Mkhitaryan gives you another veteran player who's been in big games before. <sighs> okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah. We mentioned at the top of the show. He's won the Europa League. He's finished third. Shouldn't Chelsea just be like, hey, maybe you should definitely stay and don't even think about going to Juventus? I mean, that's been my opinion for a very long time now, especially given everything that Chelsea have already been through with their managers and where they're probably going to be with a looming transfer ban. Uh, with Aiden Hazard probably leaving, it feels like you would want some level of consistency. I think they just don't like him. It's really strange. It is that, right? Yeah. I heard um, you know, on The Continent, a mm-hmm. uh, podcast we both uh, sometimes listen to, mm-hmm. um, James Horncastle, who's an Italian expert, w- was on there. And he was essentially saying that sorry to Juventus, which is the 
rumour, mm-hmm. um, would kind of do Chelsea a favour because yep. <laughs> they don't want to fire Sarri because they become a sacking club and there's not a real good reason to do it, but they also don't, the, the club doesn't seem to really mm-hmm. like him all that much. So it would just do them a favour if like, Juventus just came in for him, they'd be like, oh no, please don't take Sarri. I mean, I, and then their problem would be solved. I mean, I think they would see it as doing them a favour. I don't think it would be because yeah. then what, Frank Lampard? Like, yeah, it, yeah. It, just, it, it feels like Chelsea keep doing this thing of appointing a manager who's going to change things. When they try to change things, there's pushback. And instead of that, it's never mind, we don't want to change things, you're fired. Yeah, yeah. We'll bring in somebody who's not going to change things. Okay, Classic now we've definitely got to change things. This goes back a long way, yeah. but Andre Villas-Boas yeah. was brought in to change things, play a high line, mm-hmm. but then John Terry wouldn't let him do it. So yeah. like, all right, we'll just get rid of Villas-Boas. We'll, we'll find another coach. I mean, Mourinho in his second stint, when he said there were rats in the locker room, the same yeah. thing. He wanted he advocated a 10-player clear out. They said no. <laughs> I mean, I, that he wanted to do that. He wanted to get rid of them, and yeah. he wasn't allowed to. And I think it's what Chelsea do. And so Sarri comes in. He has an idea for how he wants the team to play. He gets a little bit of pushback. The fans, I mean, the, the people who will be cheering him for winning a, a European trophy were the same ones who, a month ago, were chanting F Sarri ball. Yes. So, like, <laughs> it's it's... It just feels like... No, they just would... add an ing to it. Yes, <laughs> yes, sure. Yeah. Um, and an exclamation mark and a, and a fist pump. Is yeah. that what they'll do? They'll just, make it positive? They'll make it a celebration. I don't know. I mean, it just... It, I, it seems very stupid to me. Yeah, I yeah. guess the best way I can put it is, like, to lose a manager who, is who if he goes to Juve, I think will find success and be, do just fine. I mean, I could manage Juve and find success. There's that, yes. But <laughs> I just... And I mean, and I guess it's First worth thing, noting... change those jerseys back. Has already found success. He got them to third place. I don't think yeah. many people thought that Chelsea would finish in the Champions League spots, let alone third this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, but given the given the turnover, given how strong, like I think everybody thought it was going to be City-Liverpool again, then it was kind of a toss-up. But there were many reasons to think that Chelsea were going to finish sixth. Yeah. So it's a credit to him that they did. And you mentioned earlier the, the looming transfer ban. Mm-hmm. Chelsea cannot sign or register players uh, this summer. There's maybe a cast ruling might free it up for yeah. them. But well, Sar- just if, if they appeal it, then I think because the appeal is open, yeah. then they can. But there's a chance there's a transfer ban in place yeah. this summer. Mm-hmm. And Sar is the perfect guy to have while you've got a transfer ban because he's not a guy that ever talks about the transfer market. No. Right? He's a guy that just works with what he's got. That's maybe who you need. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And what I mean, coach is going to want to join when you've got a transfer ban? So, yeah. So, so yeah, to, to sum it up, Chelsea maybe should stick with Sarri. Yes. Um, second thing I want to ask you, mm-hmm. is Olivier Giroud underrated? Uh, I think he's probably... Or did he just have one really good game today? I think he's properly rated. Properly I, I, rated I, I mean, I, I think that's the thing. Is like He's not a forward who I would look to as being unplayable. I'm not necessarily nervous that Olivier Giroud is starting. Yeah. But he's also one who, if you find him the like situation that benefits him, yes. I think he takes full advantage. Can I, let me rephrase it. Is, is World Cup winning striker Olivier Giroud underrated? Uh, I mean, same, same answer. Yeah, same answer. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, yeah, I think you're asking me a lot of questions. What do you say? I mean, I think yes. I think mm-hmm. so many people. I think maybe because he's not fast and he's not running in behind, and it's not dynamic and exciting. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it only works a certain way. But if you're serving balls into the box, if you're asking someone to connect play, I, I think he's a wonderful striker to have. So yeah. he's underrated then. Yes. Okay. That is my answer. Daryl Gross yeah. is underrated. Unai Emery, we haven't mm-hmm. talked about. Um, so he's finished what fifth? Yeah, mm-hmm. fifth with Arsenal. This was his chance to make the Champions League. Hasn't qualified for the Champions League. Do Arsenal need to rethink in terms of their coach, or after one year, would they be smart to just say? Keep going, Unai. What, what you got next year? I mean, I, I think they would. It, they either have to back him or they have to get rid. That's what okay. I would say. And I know that's kind of like the classic the, back him or sack him. That's the yeah, yeah. That's the textbook answer. But I think here it applies because you saw. I think we saw players in this game who, when they went one 0 down, when they went two 0 down, 
didn't really want to fight anymore. Or at the very least, were not as inclined to do some of the stuff that was asked to do it 100%. And that's what you have to do if you want to fight back. Yeah. And I think that either means that you've got to back the manager and get rid of those players and bring in people who want to play in that system, who want to play for him. Or you've got to say, no, we want to keep these players. We have money invested in them. We think that maybe there is another manager who can get the best out of them. Then you've got to do that. But then you've got to find that manager. And again, I don't know who that would be right now. Okay, yeah. Because you've got a lot answer. of teams who are sort of have question marks around their managerial situation. So I don't think this is one where you've got three or four obvious candidates who are looking for jobs or are looking to make a move. You're kind of going to be struggling to find somebody, I think. And even if there were those coaches out there, mm-hmm. they'd be looking for Champions League teams. There's also that. So there is yeah. also So I know I think I think Arsenal should and will stick with Unai Emery, but I do think they're going to have to do some business this summer because even looking, I mean, they played three center backs and it was Socrates who had lots of issues, Laurent Koscielny who's definitely coming to the end of his career. He's I think he had to have like pain-killing injections. There's been conversations about that. And then Nacho Monreal is not a center back. So mm-hmm. I think between, like right there you've kind of got to invest. You've got to find some new players. Yes, he's all, don't we always do our transfer shows? It's always Arsenal should sign a centre back. Pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I, they have Leno, but he's on the bench. They yeah. have, I think Petr Cech is leaving. I'm, I'm not quite sure what's happening there, but it feels like this is the end of it for Petr Cech. So I maybe mean, Mustafi will fix all their defensive problems. Yeah, put Mustafi in goal. See what happens. <laughs> I mean, maybe better off than centre back. Probably. Um, okay, from one. Uh, questionable uh, mm-hmm. tournament yeah. the Europa League because not everybody loves it uh, we're also today going to talk about the League's Cup which is the MLS Liga MX's uh, combo mm-hmm. tournament but first let's talk about something more secure than let's that let's do it today's show is sponsored by Grip6 Belch G-R-I-P the number 6 Belch Grip6.com is the website mm-hmm. it's the only belt with no holes and uh, no belt flap hanging out so it's low profile ultra lightweight which means you can wear it while you're sitting watching games and then talking about those games all day which is to say <laughs> that's what I'm doing right now it's also made in America, mm-hmm. right? Designed in America, manufactured in America. It is very much an American product. Specifically, I can't remember the city, but somewhere in Utah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like Kyle Beckerman then. Just like Kyle Beckerman. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, but more... Um, a lot Slightly of, more streamlined than when he had the dreads. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's Kyle Beckerman now with the haircut, yes. And of course, as we mentioned, Grip6 belts come with the guarantee. Mm-hmm. Can you remember the three A's guarantee? Uh, I cannot. Anytime, uh-huh. you can return it. Anytime, any condition... Any something else. Any reason, I'm guessing, Any reason. It, that's it. That's it. Any reason is the third thing. All yeah. right. There we go. Yeah, so that, that's good to know because if there's wear, you can replace it. If it breaks, you can replace it. If you just don't like it, you can just get rid of it and they will uh, deal with it no matter what. Sort of like Chelsea's approach to coaches. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you would like to get a discount on a Grip6 belt, uh, the URL, the special URL, is grip6.com slash TSS. That's grip6.com slash TSS. And there you will find special discounts set up only for Total Soccer Show listeners. You can also share it with someone who's not a listener. You can. If you would like them to uh, take a look at Grip6 Belts as well. So thank you to Grip6 Belts for sponsoring today's episode. Now shall we talk League's Cup? Yeah. All right. I'm sort of half excited to talk about it because it's so weird. Mm Mm-hmm. And half disappointed that this is happening. Dumb. The word is dumb, Daryl. Not, the word not, is dumb. not weird. Not weird. So let's describe okay. it first. Mm-hmm. The League's Cup is a new tournament that is, uh, it's been formed essentially by Soccer United Marketing um, as a partnership between Major League Soccer and Liga MX. And it's going to be four MLS teams, four Liga MX teams, and they're going to play single elimination with all games in the United States. Mm-hmm. Right? That's basically what's happening. Are you ready for the teams? Uh, first, I want to okay. ask you something because, like, not not that I disagree. I just I didn't know this. Why do you say it's like mostly set up by Soccer United Marketing? 
Because it is. I mean, all of this is uh, like a, a collaboration between MLS mm-hmm. and Liga MX. And I think Saki United, United Marketing are at the heart of that kind of thing. When Liga MX teams do things in the United States of mm-hmm. America, that's Saki United Marketing. When the Mexican national team plays in the United States of America, and mm-hmm. everyone's like, why are they playing in Dallas mm-hmm. right, with the Mexican national team? That's Saki United Marketing. Gotcha. It's their contract. Right? All right. So yeah. Saki United Marketing uh, likely involved. And I think that explains I'm pretty sure. some of the teams and some of yeah. the venues that we're looking at. Yes, because uh, it looks like we're going straight to the quarterfinal. Final round because yeah, four MLS teams, teams yeah. for Liga Mackey's teams. We've got uh, on the MLS side Chicago, Houston, LA uh, Galaxy, and Real Salt Lake. Uh, Chicago will be playing Cruz Azul. Houston will be playing Club America. LA Galaxy will be playing uh, Tijuana, and RSL will be playing Tigres. So that's it. That's your quarterfinals, and the MLS teams will be hosting all these games. Yes. Here's the weird part. It's mid-season for MLS, right? Mm-hmm. These games will just be dropped into the, the middle of the season. Yep. And it's one week into the season for Liga MX teams. Yep. Did you know that the uh, Liga MX uh, season starts, mm-hmm. uh, the Apertura starts, I wrote this down, I can't find the date on my piece of paper, July 19th. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first games will be July 23rd, July 24th. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and, and I think the idea there, if you want to go the MLS kind of narrative, is that they want to show that they are more competitive than maybe CONCACAF Champions League would indicate uh, because usually that is the kind of initial games are being played when MLS is just starting or when they're in preseason, whereas Liga Mekis is in full swing. So I think their idea is that, well, if you flip that around, then Major League Soccer teams look much more competitive. Um, I would argue that that is not necessarily the case because I don't think they're going to play the strongest teams. And I also think that you could just raise the salary budget and that might also work too. (laughs) There's a quote out there from mm-hmm. Lester Gretsch, who is the um, Univision Houston correspondent. Yeah. He spoke to Wilma Cabrera, the Houston Dynamo coach, and Cabrera told him for Houston's game um, against Club America, mm-hmm. giant, giant team Club America, what we'll probably do is play a lot of the Rio Grande Valley players, which is their USL affiliate. Yeah. So if MLS had dreams of like this being a thing where maybe we could take down League MX teams on home soil... Um, I don't think MLS teams are going to cooperate by fielding their strongest team. Yeah, and because why would you? You're middle of the season. You're trying to you're trying to earn points, right? Yeah, and 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 what this comes down to to me is like, so then who are you playing this for? Why are these games happening? Do do Chicago, Houston, LA, and, and RSL fans are they really going to want to spend money to go see these games in the middle of a season when they're probably going to end up playing like reserve players at best? And, yeah, the answer is no. And flipping that around, then if those like Liga Mekki sides know that they're not going to play their stars, or at least they're not going to play them the whole game. So then it speaks to, you're just trying to sell tickets to people who don't otherwise get to see those Liga Mekis teams. I think that's the answer. Mm-hmm. I think the big draw, I actually think this will sell in the stadium kind of well, mm-hmm. but it will be Club America, Cruz Azul, Tigres, Tijuana, or even just like Mexican soccer fans yeah. um, who live in the United States, who you know live too far away and can't go and watch those teams in Liga MX because they live in the United States. They will take the opportunity to probably go and fill Chicago's Bridgeview Stadium uh, to watch Tigres. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, and, and I think... Like, to watch fur- Cruz Azul, excuse me. Further evidence of that, though, would be that uh, if, say, every single MLS team gets eliminated in this in the quarterfinals, I still think that's a ludicrous way to explain <laughs> this, but fine, then it goes to neutral venues, but I think they're looking to play those neutral venues in Los Angeles or Houston, where they've right. proven so, that they will get attendance for uh, Mexican national team games, yep. so why not play these games there and see what happens? So that's the economic part of this, mm-hmm. is I think they will fill the stadiums with essentially Mexican soccer fans who are coming to see Liga MX teams which I, I totally agree or Mexican American and, and will make money but that's where I, to go back to the original like start of this conversation that's why I think this is stupid because <laughs> then if you're Major League Soccer 
what is the benefit here? Like, there is only at best you're playing teams that are like just starting, and you, maybe you win this thing, but you're winning a kind of a made-up competition against teams that are in preseason. Great, but at worst, it's going to be you playing in your own stadium that's sold out for people who are rooting for the other team who then potentially beat you because you're playing reserve players. <laughs> yep. It's not a good look. So I don't think this is going to go well yep. this uh, first time around, but I think there is one eye on building for the future. Right? I did see in the MLS press release they said, um, so this year the teams were just essentially chosen by invitation. And which kind of means that maybe some team, the teams who are willing to do it. Yep. Um, they say in 2020, they'll expand beyond four teams from each league and the teams will be chosen by sporting merit. Mm-hmm. And I would, for me at least, at that point, if, it's, if you have to actually do something to qualify, like maybe top four in the East, top four in the West or something from MLS, then it has a little more merit as a tournament because you've actually qualified for it as opposed to it being essentially what it is now, which is the International Champions Cup, um, just with MLS versus League MX teams. But why would it change? Why, why would if, I don't know, if Philly end up finishing top of the East, yeah. why would Philadelphia have any more motivation next season to play their starters in the middle of a season when potentially they're alive in like Champions League, US Open Cup, and Major League Soccer, and a potential playoff push down the road? Like, yeah. I don't not, have, have a good answer change? to that. I don't I, have an answer. I think that the hope from mm-hmm. MLS, League MX, and SUM is that maybe... We start it now and it slowly builds momentum and eventually it becomes a thing. Mm-hmm. Like everything's like not respected to begin with and they hope that down the road it becomes a respected tournament. I don't necessarily have a really good roadmap for, for how you get there. I think I'm about to burn burn some bridges here and maybe we're never going to get uh, you know paid to be on, on MLS soccer or anything like that. But like that to me is what frustrates me the most about decisions like this is that it feels like it almost feels like ah, just do it and the dummies will go see it like it it, it doesn't feel like they're trying to create a thing that is meant to be exciting it's meant to be they it almost feels like they're telling us hey you should be really excited about this and that is enough to make us excited like it never feels like they're building a thing that would make both of us excited like pumped up if they made it hey instead of playoffs this this one season we're gonna have like the top eight teams play the top eight teams in mexico and they're not gonna have playoffs either or whatever like i would love that i know mls and league makes the actual long-term vision of the partnership but maybe it is maybe in 2035 mm-hmm. they're thinking they could do that i mean we're already coasting the world cup with mexico and canada right yeah. maybe it is like intermingled playoffs i think that would be glorious i mean i, I think ms teams would need to up the budget and really be ready to compete at that point or we get blown out in the playoffs and, and i guess that's that's what it comes down to for me is that this feels like they're doing a thing to make some money to keep more eyes on major league soccer to potentially have some teams win because they're playing preseason opponents who aren't necessarily going to be playing their best players mm-hmm. again this is right after the gold cup so maybe some mexican players who are involved in the gold cup or other players who are involved in the gold cup don't end up playing in these games either and so to me it almost ends up feeling like it's major league soccer getting to say i don't know la galaxy beat club tijuana see we're not that far behind see we're just as good we're just see, as competitive without I, having to actually make substantive changes i really don't think it's as much about like mls pride because it's, it is a partnership between the two leagues as it is just about making money you it's, know they're going to tout it you know that if the galaxy knocked tijuana of out course, it's yeah. going to be a whole conversation about how tijuana you know we're, we're bested by the la galaxy and how yeah. there's not that huge gap anymore but i'm arguing that's not the reason to the tournament exists because yeah. I don't think MLS would ever want to set up a tournament to prove you're better than League MX teams when MLS teams are not better than League MX teams. They would have to like make a tournament where the League MX teams start 2-0 down or play with nine men. 
This, yes, I, I take your point, but I would also say <laughs> maybe, that maybe maybe that's the twenty twenty version. But uh, like it, the, it the would, eleven v ten tournament, it would make a difference if they if they increase the salary budget, if they yeah. gave more money or anything like that. They don't have to do that. And I think that if you were to create a tournament that gives the four host teams or the four MLS teams the biggest advantage possible, that's pretty much what they've done here without actually doing that much. Yep. So that's where I go back to. It feels like they're trying to kind of stack this in their favor for Liga Mekis sides and for the Mexican uh, like federation. They're probably going to make a little bit of money off of it. So why not do it? So just again, the quarterfinals are July 23rd, 24th. The semifinals will be August 20th. Yeah. The final will be September 18th. So mm-hmm. there's kind of a lack of momentum, right? With like a month between um, each round. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's that element to it. That's the end of the um, season, September 18th, that final. There's also the Campeones Cup. Yep. Is happen- Remember that happened last year? Most people forgot it happened. Mm-hmm. That's happening again this year where um, MLS Cup holders at Atlanta United will face um, the team that wins uh, the Mexican tournament. We actually don't know who will be the, who will be the winners just yet. That's mm-hmm. going to be like August 14th or so. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just a thing that's building, right? Like through SUM and MLS and League MX, they're just establishing a bunch of weird competitions. Maybe they're just throwing stuff at the, roll, the wall and hoping one of them sticks. But then also continuing to do them all, even if none of them stick. Yeah, so we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Speaking of, the fun thing we should mention about this is the Superliga. Mm-hmm. Did you remember the Superliga? No. You, have, you, you mentioned it and I had completely forgotten it. I have vague memories of the yeah. Superliga. So from 2007 to 2010, MLS and Liga MX combined on a thing called the Superliga. It was four teams from each league. And they played group stages, like intermingled group stages, like, so two and two and two and two, two groups of four, and then semifinals. So it's essentially the League's Cup is the Superliga, just with a slightly different format. They've eliminated the group stage and just gone straight, single elimination from the quarterfinals instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Superliga didn't work. It didn't really catch on. No one took it seriously. I'd be really interested to know, because um, I think we've, we've done a lot of like bashing this. I'm, this is just a question. I'd be really interested to know, why do MLS, Liga MX, and SUM think... All right, but this time it will work. Mm-hmm. Like, what is the difference in 2019 versus 2007 to 2010? I mean, I think as long as they make money, to your point, I'm not sure they necessarily care. Okay. <laughs> All right. Final answer? Yeah, pretty much. Well, well now that honors the final Is it answer. obvious that I'm not a big fan of this yeah, competition? It is. Okay. It is. But I still, I like the idea of just considering it from various angles, like why are they doing it? What's the future of it? What could happen? Um, there's a chance that in the long term, to wrap this up, this is the beginning of something that's actually worthwhile, but it's many, many, many years away. I wish listeners could see how high your shoulders are when you said that, that you went from like talking normally to being like, I mean, there's a chance that maybe. There's a chance, <laughs> right? I remember your initial opposition to the UEFA Nations League. Uh, yeah, this is dumber. <laughs> like that's, if you want to, if you want to try to do that, that's fine. All right. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we're all pumped for the League's Cup, and it starts July 23rd, 24th. Yep. I look forward to you talking about that on this show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you ready to talk some Total Soccer Show Scouting Network? Sure, let's do it. Okay, so we have scouting reports from, I'm going to estimate, yeah, 10 scouts, 10 players. Um, let's get started, Let's Dan. do it. All right, first up, I'll get us started, is David Novoshevsky, mm-hmm. who is scouting Sebastian Szymanski. Szymanski, excuse mm-hmm. me. 22-year-old Polish uh Midfielder mm-hmm. for Legia Warsaw. Mm-hmm. Szymanski had a solid finish to the season, says David. Um, although Legia limped to a second place finish in the Elkstras class, excuse mm-hmm. me, it was in spite of, not because of, Szymanski's play. He continued to show great pace, energy, and good decision making, and added a couple of goals and assists down the stretch. Szymanski also received his first call up to the senior national team for the upcoming Euro qualifiers against Macedonia and Israel. Mm-hmm. All right, so positive there. Less positive, coming from Mark Ryan, scouting Giovanni Simeone, 23-year-old Argentine forward for Fiorentina. The Serie A season came to a lackluster close for Simeone. Here's an example of his season, courtesy of the Viola Nation Nation blog. Uh, Quote, 
Benassi nicked the ball back by the end line and squared for Simeone, who was tightly marked, sure, but still couldn't convert from literally a foot away. Just before the break, the ball went pinging around the area and finally dropped for him again, completely alone, uh, alone, 15 yards from goal, and with time to settle himself, he tried to curl a shot into the top corner and ended up missing the goal by a matter of feet. For any other striker on any other team, it would have been a shocking miss. For Fiorentina's Simeone, it was very much par for the season. Ooh, I remember when Simeone couldn't stop scoring. Uh, yes, I think uh, they would prefer that than this, as yeah. would he probably. I'll say you've got to be in the place to, uh, to miss him. Mm-hmm. So at least he's finding the spots. Sure. Shreyas Romani is scouting Dan Axel Zagadou, 19-year-old French centre-back for Borussia Dortmund. Zagadou's season at Dortmund ended on a sour note as he only played 12 minutes in, the, in a sub-appearance versus Mainz after the Bayern Munich debacle. Oh yeah, he set up Lewandowski for a goal and they yeah. don't play on the same team. Um, partially due to a knee problem that kept him out of the squad for a month. In better news, he started, captained the team and played 90 minutes in the France U20s first two group stage games versus Saudi Arabia and Panama. Didn't have a lot to do versus a Saudi side that was down to 10 men for more than a half. Against Panama, Zagadou scored off a corner with a flying kick that made it past the Panamanian goalkeeper. With the two wins, France are through to the knockout stages. You know there's a real good chance that the US plays France mm-hmm. in the round of 16. Yep, that could be uh, tough. USA playing Qatar tomorrow afternoon. Travis and I will be talking about the uh, group stage for the U.S. on Friday's Top Door Soccer Show. Oh, lovely. Mm-hmm. And you'll probably be looking ahead to a game against France. I would bet so. Uh, we will not be talking about uh, Izzy Brown, who's scattered by Zach Lippert. Uh, Izzy Brown is a 22-year-old English attacker for Chelsea. Izzy Brown is heading back to Chelsea after his season-long loan at Leeds resulted in him playing just 11 minutes after recovering from an ACL tear oh. and a hamstring injury. I wonder how bad that bottleneck is going to be of Loney's returning to Chelsea. Like, can they all get through the door at the same time, or are there so many? Do they have to stagger it? How's They'll that going like to work? They'll a Delhi numbering system. Okay. Probably. <laughs> that would make sense. Just, just a horde of people outside of yeah. Stanford Bridge trying to get in. Oh, oh, bit of Leeds news. Bielsa re-signed. Mm-hmm. Not resigned. Re-signed. Mm-hmm. So Bielsa will be coaching Leeds again next year. He will indeed. Um, Ryan Marzak is scouting Piona Sisto, the 24-year-old Danish attacker for Celta Vigo. Ryan says Sisto will not feature in Denmark's upcoming Euro 2020 qualifier. His former suffered for most of the season and his off-the-field preparations may be at least partly to blame. Sisto went live on social media earlier this month to admit that he'd broken his challenge of only eating fruit for 21 days. This could not have been positive for his overall fitness and strength. I would say not. It's not terrible, I guess. It's a lot of sugar, though, in the end. I mean, there's also, like, isn't there the theory that that's what uh, led to Steve Jobs getting, like, pancreatic cancer, pancreatic issues, that he was really? a fruit- fruititarian or whatever? Fruititarian? I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who know significantly more about this than I do. I just remember the story that, like, Ashton Kutcher, when he was in his own Jobs movie, he tried to do the same diet, and he started getting, he got, like, an infection in his pancreas, and so there was oh, this wow. whole theory that, yeah, Eat some protein is, I guess, what I'm getting at here. Um, yes, and don't quote me on that one. Do your own reading. But there you Fair. go. Uh, ben Hefner. Tyler Rockwell, not a doctor. Uh, new. Much like Dr. Dre. Also that. Uh, he might be, though. Uh, scouting Jaden Sancho, 19-year-old English right winger for Borussia Dortmund. Jaden ended his breakout season with Dortmund as both the assist and dribble king of the Bundesliga. Is there a crown for that? Uh, there should be, and it should be a dual crown. Uh, Dortmund have signed young Bundesliga stars uh, Torgan Hazard and Julian Brandt uh, in the past week, sparking rumors that a summer move could be in the cards for Sancho to a European giant like Real Madrid uh, or PSG or a less giant like, say, Manchester United. <laughs> Do you really think that? I think Borussia Dortmund restock all the time. Mm-hmm. So they're not planning on selling him, but they're just always constantly restocking. I mean, you know I, I, mean? Th- I think they're not planning on it, but I also think that they would be willing to if the right offer came along. Fair enough, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or if Sancho said, hey, I want to go. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Dortmund remind me of like a, 
a grocery store that's always expecting a storm. So they're just always stocked up, uh, ready to replenish. <laughs> forward planning. Trevor Tobert is scouting Griffin Yao, the 16-year-old American forward for DC United. Trevor says Griffin Yao scored his first goal for DC United. In a friendly against Real Betis, mm-hmm. Yao took a shot from outside the box and that took a deflection on the way in. He was a standout player in the match all on a school night as well. This goal comes after Yao had a fantastic time with the US under-17s, scoring twice against Guatemala. There we are. Well done, Griffin Yao. Final report comes from Todd Ito, scouting Takafusa Kubo, the 17-year-old Japanese attacker for FC Tokyo. Takafusa Kubo was named to the Japanese national team for their upcoming friendlies and the Copa America tournament. Uh, on the pitch, Kubo went the full 90 in FC Tokyo's first loss of the season against Cerezo Osaka on Saturday. Yeah, pretty big deal that a 17-year-old is in that squad. So I remember him not making the U20 Japan squad and mm-hmm. thinking, okay. Well, I think it was rumored then that that was why he didn't oh, okay. make it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's going to be exciting to see him. Uh, not that I'm going to watch every Japan match at Copa America, but it could be pretty exciting <laughs> if he makes an appearance, right? I, now you have to. We'll find out in the Scouting Network. We will indeed. If you'd like to join the Scouting Network, it's totalsoccershow.com slash join. That link will be in the show notes along with the links to today's sponsors, Robin Hood and Grip6. We should also add, though, that we are planning to do at least some coverage of Copa America. We're going to try to have uh, Felipe Cardenas yeah. on to, t- uh, to discuss some of that, as well as watching some games ourselves. He's so it's not just on... going to be via the scouting network. So it's not going to be uh, uh, Felipe Cardenas just focused on Takafusa Kubo, though, right? Probably not. That's <laughs> Tadito's job. <laughs> Great. There's so many tournaments this summer. Mm-hmm. So many tournaments. One of which is... World Cup 2019, Mm -hmm. and we will be back uh, this week with our previews of Group B and, on Friday, Group C. Um, So, yeah, lots and lots to look forward to there. Taylor Rockwell, all that remains to say is a very sincere thank you for sitting through the Europa League final with me. Second half was good. Right back it was, right? Five mm. goals. It was, it was worth it in the end. Listeners, thank you for listening. We always appreciate it. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow. 